0: Well, what a surprise this morning. I'm standing out there praying, I look out the door, and here's Bernie and Jeanette. Now, I've got to give you some background. Bernie was on our leadership team at our last church. In fact, he's like, um, he, he's still on it. He's, he's like the Mark Wilkinson of our other church. Like, he's the chef, he's the general dog's body, he's the all-round nice guy, he's the one everyone goes to when there's a crisis. He's just a lovely man, he's got a beautiful heart. I think... And I don't know the score, but I think he turned up today because Australia was playing New Zealand, and New Zealand probably won, and he was probably looking for someone that he could come and pay out, and he probably thought, well, Mark's the only one I know. I'll go and find him, and we'll make sure that the Kiwis get their bit, but uh, never mind. Great to have you guys here, and anyone else that's visiting, it's great to have you. We've been doing a series called, that's not the series, we just lost it, sorry, Tan. We can sing again if you want. We've been doing a series called The Revolution of Love, and it really is, I guess, the catch cry of our church. We want our church to be a place where there's love, but a revolutionary style of love, like way beyond what the world expects love to be, and and I'm hoping even way beyond what the average church offers. Because I think when we look at the life of Christ and the way that he ministered to people and the way that he embraced people, it was revolutionary. But I think the struggle is for us to live that out in our context, in our workplaces, in our families, in our churches, is a struggle. It's a learning thing. It's it's a growth exercise to go deeper into love with God. We've been looking at this verse. Jesus answered the crowd and said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It really says every fiber of our being needs to be about loving God vertically and loving others horizontally, but also loving ourselves. Out of love for God and love for ourselves, we can love others the right way. And he said, A new command I am giving to you that you must love each other just as I have loved you. And if you love each other that way, everyone will know that you are my disciples doesn't get any easier than that. What is one of the simplest yet hardest ways, it should be, to consistently express love? Like how can we express love? We can do it by acts of service. We can do it by spending time with people. We can also do it by the words that we speak. And I think in the context of love... Using the right words in the right context in the right way is probably one of the hardest exercises any of us will learn to how to control our tongue because our words can do so much good and yet our words can do so much damage. And if you think back through your journey of church life and life with other Christians, I bet you you can say to me, yeah, I've been hurt. Words have been said, words have been taken out of context, things have been misunderstood, words have done damage I bet you you can also say words did incredible things in my life to build me up, to strengthen me, to spur me on to greater things in God. So I think we've got to really get a handle on that the most practical way a revolution of love is going to happen is if the church uses its tongue the right way. Because that's really where it goes pear-shaped. It's normally when it begins to fall apart. When we've said something, even sometimes we don't (laughs) even know we've said it, but we need to pull it out. So that little thing there, it's a healthy-looking tongue. It's not like mine, I can show you. But that's the point, and this is what James said. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect and able to keep their whole body in check, but the point is none of us can. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal, or take ships as an example, although... They are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. And likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? No, it can't. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No, it can't. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Understanding the context of that passage is really simple. This thing can do a lot of damage. It really can. And if we, if we say, I've got it under control, we're a fool. Because it's not something that you just do once. You have to constantly keep making sure your tongue is under control because it can do a power of good and it can do a power of damage. The scriptures say, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and let your conversation be always full of grace. seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here's the point. Whatever comes out of our mouth should only be what is helpful for building others up. That's the grid we have to pass it through. That's the, that's the testing point. Is what I'm going to say helpful to this person for building them up? And the next part of that passion goes on to say according to their needs. In other words, you have to assess what their need is and then speak into that need and build them up. So sometimes you have to refrain from speaking. You have to control what you say because you need to think about what their need is, where they are in life, what potential damage that word Do in their life. So this morning, I want to talk about what I believe is what the church has lost the art of using the tongue as a love relationship to one another. Okay, and there's levels to this, and the first one is affirmation, and it makes it means to make shine, or make manifest, to show, to speak, to tell, to utter, to describe, to call, to give out, to name, and put forth. Let me put it another way. It's a declaration. If I affirm somebody, I'm declaring something to confirm something in their life and to say that this is true. Okay? So I can go to John and I can say, John, you're a great guy. You know that, don't you? But I, I, I receive it. yeah, <laughs> shut up and <laughs> <laughs> just receive it. Sorry, I'm not good Exactly the point. We're not good at it. That's why we need to talk about it. Because if I affirm you, I, I build you up because I recognize things that I might see in my natural eye. And say, so John, you're a great worship leader. You've got a gentle spirit. You love, you love to put your arm around people. You've got a you know, soft way of doing things. And as he receives that, he feels good about himself. He's built up. So I'm affirming something that I see in him. And I'm not telling him anything he probably doesn't know, but I'm confirming it for you so you know that that's a good thing and you hold on to that. I'm declaring the existence something that's already flowing out of his life and just putting that label on it and saying, hey, Jonah, you're a great guy. Okay? So we we can all affirm people. Even if we don't know anything about them, we can affirm them because we, we can train our mind to look for the positive things in those people's lives. It can be a very simple thing like, hey, Trent, I like your sunglasses, mate. They're really cool. You've obviously got some style, mate. Now, he would probably think I'm flattering him or patronising him. It needs to be done in the right context. But what I'm saying is we can, we can develop an attitude in our lives where we go looking for things that we can affirm rather than the other side of that ledger is going looking for all their faults. And the biblical perspective is, is not to do that, not to find fault, not to judge, because once we go down that slippery dip, then all we ever do is find faults. Do you want me to list your faults for you, John? <laughs> a bit later. Because we can all do that, can't we? We can yeah, I'll email them through. But that's the reality. That's a choice factor. We don't come across anybody who's perfect, so we can always find fault. But if we can flip that ledger over and look for the good in people and speak to the good in people then we will only do what is helpful for building them up according to John's need. Now, what if John is in a very sensitive, delicate situation? I need to be ultra careful then what words I speak into his life. Because if I lie to him and if I flatter him when it's not really true, then I set him up to to be hurt even more. It's got to be the truth. And affirmation is not, not... correcting you or saying you should do more of this. It's just a statement to say, this is who you are, John. This is what I recognise about you. This is what I love about you. And we can all do that. Affirmation is something you can teach. You know, Moana, you're a great mum. I see the way that you operate with your kids. Now, I don't know Moana that well, but I know she's a great mum and I can just affirm her and encourage her. What mum doesn't need encouragement? Belle, you're a great mum. I know you're going through a tough time. It's hard work. You're a good dad too, mate. But that's the reality. We need more affirmation. There's such a deficit of it in our world and in our churches. And it's not flattery. It's not coming along and and buttering somebody up. It's just recognize who God is in them and how God is oozing out of them and just putting a label on them and and saying, this is you, this is the God that I see in you. This is Jesus oozing out of you. It's a beautiful thing to do. So we, we can do it in the natural sense, We can also do it in the supernatural sense that sometimes God gives us insight into somebody's life and we can affirm them even though we don't know anything about them. It can have a prophetic edge to it. You know, sometimes you meet people and you just sense, you know, God's already told me this about you. Well, why is He telling you that? So you can affirm that person and build them up. Maybe that in the context of that person's life, they've never heard that or no one's ever reinforced that. And someone comes along and says, hey, I see this in you. And they go, really? Yes, I see this in you. Be encouraged. Be built up. Be edified. And that person will go on from strength to strength because someone took the time not to tear them down, but to affirm them. So we're just announcing something that that helps build them up. That's affirmation. The next step is to move into exhortation. These are all biblical words. Affirmation, exhortation. Exhortation is like affirmation, but it's got a little bit more of a cutting edge to it because it's, it's, in, it's like a beseech or an appeal to something. I can say to John, John, you're a great guy, I love you very much, you're a great worship leader, but, but my sense is that God wants to do even more in your life. And, and I think if you could just, you know, spend more time with the Lord or whatever. I'm not tearing him down. I'm building up what I see is his potential and exhorting him, pleading with him, urging with him. John, there's more. Go for it, mate. Grab hold of what God is, is doing. So it's like a, it's, it's inciting in John the potential that is there to achieve that potential. If I exhort you, I plead with you. It also has the positive it also has the correctional edge on it where it can be, John, I want to exhort you that I think if you keep on with that. behavior Don't you hate being the example? It's terrible, isn't it? But I could say to John, John, I, I, want, to, I want to exhort you because you're doing so well, but I'm frightened that if you keep doing this, there might be problems. Now, I've just taken a step away from affirmation to correction. I need to be careful that I have permission to do that in John's life. That's what we don't do in Christian circles. We feel like we have some license to go and tell John a correction, and yet if I don't have the right relational framework with John, I will do damage rather than edify according to his need. I need to know if I've got the permission to bring that need to you. Because if I do it and I don't have that permission, I'm going to crush you. Or I have the potential to crush you. Now, if he's maturing, God, he might take that on board and say, yep, there's some truth in that, Mark, and deal with it and process it. But if his need is that he's vulnerable and struggling, and I come in and say, yep, I can see this, you need to fix this, and don't do it with the right spirit of humility and love, if he doesn't perceive that, then I've done more damage than I've done good. So it's an admonition or encouragement for the purpose of strengthening or establishing John in a greater belief in his faith and nothing more and nothing less. It's not to be a damaging thing. Like when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, exhort the church, exhort them, meaning challenge them, urge them on, believe in them, tell them they can get there, encourage them, console them, You know, put your arms around them, get them to move on in their faith don't stay where they are it's a really beautiful spiritual gift because what it does is it creates in the person who's receiving those words an understanding that God has more for them much much more for them and they can latch hold of that and they can grow in grace and favor because they realize that someone believes in them someone knows that God has got even more And your help, you're ushering them into that greatness. You must exhort one another each day. That's what the scripture says. And you must keep on while there is still a time that can be called today. In other words, every day we should be exhorting one another. If you don't, then sin may fool some of you and make you stubborn. Have you ever met someone who doesn't like being encouraged? I've never met anyone who said, stop, don't encourage me. I don't like encouragement. Everyone wants encouragement. If I say, would you like some correction? Oh, yes, please, correct me right now, right here in front of everyone. We don't like correction, but we need and we love encouragement. So, that, so the encouragement should outweigh the correction. Finally then, brothers, that we ask and urge, exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You get the tone of the language of exhortation. It's not pulling people down. It's building them up and it's spurring them on. It's encouraging them to keep going with God that God has this whole wealth of stuff for them to embrace and keep going with. My friends, we beg you to warn anyone who isn't living right, to urge and exhort, encourage one another. Anyone who feels left out, help all who are weak and be patient with everyone. It's exhortation. Um, yeah, pretty straightforward. We go from affirmation to exhortation to admonishing. I want to draw a line between exhortation and exhortation. And admonishing someone. If you admonish someone, you're going to correct them. You're going to speak into their life in such a way that you're going to say, "I can see something that I don't believe measures up to the standard of Scripture." It's not about your personal standard. It's about you saying, "You know, Paul, can I share something with you? I'm concerned. You know, and and you need to brace him for the correction." The thing about Paul is I need to know that I have your rights and your permission to admonish you. Because in the normal context of normal life, none of us have that right. If we hold a title or position as a pastor, we may get that right from the pulpit, but it still doesn't mean I have a license to go around and be Paul's spiritual, relational, social policeman and tell him all his faults and wrongs. I can only do that If I know he's inviting that from me and that I have his permission to do that and we have the the right relational connection for that to occur. Because if I barge into Paul's life and I start to be negative when he doesn't really know my heart for him, then I'm just going to do all sorts of damage and wound him and spiritually abuse him. My intention might be great, my heart might be good, but the moment I do it without understanding what your need is and where you are, if I move in there without him being ready, crushed. And I think we've all been crushed by people that sort of caught us off guard and said, hey, Laura, I want to tell you something. It's like, oh, Did I really need to know that? Well, you might not have. That's just the point. It might not have been the time. It might not have been the right context. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Read that carefully. That is Paul writing to the church, and he spent three years admonishing the people, correcting their faults, trying to help them to grow in God, trying to help them move away from their old life and embrace the new life in Christ. He wasn't condemning them, he was admonishing them with tears. In other words, Paul came to them with tears. He didn't make them cry. He came with such a heavy heart that he was crying when he said, Paul, I need to tell you this. That's the difference. The motivation of his heart was pure. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. See the context? It's coming out of a place of love for those people. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labour among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So there is a sense in any, that anyone in a, in a position of authority in the church has an opportunity to admonish, not a right to admonish. I have a right to teach you the Word of God. I don't have a right to push that into your personal life and make you obey it. I can only admonish you, encourage you tell you that this is God's way, this is the right way. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Is anyone idle? Yes, we can go and say, you're idle. What's going on? That's not God's way. Let's do this the right way. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Admonishing should have this little bracket around it which says caution. Admonish with caution. Proceed gently. Make sure you have the right Make sure you're trying to put yourself in the feet of the person that you're going to talk to and say, do I, ha- do I have permission to do this? And, and tread very gentle, because it is a gentle or friendly reproof. It's a counsel or a warning against fault or oversight. So you are cautioning them. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So the idea of monishing is not having this book of rules that I carry around that I want to imply into everyone's life. It's having God's standard and saying we all need to follow this standard. It's not because we want to be dictated to by rules, but we want to live a Christ-like life. So you need to ask yourself, if you're going to admonish someone, and I'm not saying don't, I'm saying be careful and be wise, understand what position you have in their life. Because what you perceive might be your position in their life might not actually be the case. I often hear people, they say, I'm worried about such and such, I want to go and talk to them, and I know that they'll listen to me. Sometimes I go... I don't think you understand the context of the relationship because I don't think they would listen to you. I think they'd take great offence. They wouldn't accept the word. And that speaks to our humility and our contrite heart, whether we're actually willing to accept correction, but we need to know that we have a position. That can be a friendship, can be a marriage, can be a father to his son, can be any sort of context. But do I have the, just because you have the permission doesn't necessarily mean you have the relationship either. So just because I'm the pastor of the church doesn't mean I've earned that position in people's lives. You've got to go gently according to their needs. And if we take take affirmation and exhortation and admonishing, they're really, when we put them in a bracket, they're really about accountability. I believe the Western Australian modern church has lost their ability to keep one another accountable. We have lost it. And because we have lost that one little thing, we, the, the consequence of not having accountability is that we can do whatever is right in our own eyes. And I don't think that's the biblical pattern. Jesus had three, Peter, James and John. He had 12, he had the 72 and he had the multitudes. And the way that he relationally moved into those different circles was different. He affirmed many times And then he would, you know, exhort and admonish. But he kept those disciples much more accountable than he did the multitudes. Different relationship, different position, different platform, different permission. Come follow me. I can't follow in you, Jesus. He had permission. Because they chose to be his disciples. So he was able to come from a viewpoint that they were willing to learn. They wanted to learn. They were coming with an open heart saying, God, I want to know your ways. You teach me what you know. So they were, they were open books ready for Jesus to be able to do that. So I believe accountability is is for us to keep one another accountable so that we continue to be disciplined, so that we don't fall away from the things that, and the standards and the pattern of behaviour that God wants us to have. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. That whole idea of confessing sin to one another and praying for one another is all about accountability. The word accountability does not appear in Scripture. It's the word discipleship. And discipleship is all about being disciplined. And accountability is all about us disciplining ourselves. And when we struggle to discipline an area of our life, we get someone to help us do that. Not that they become our policemen, but we say to them, journey with me, walk alongside me, I'm giving you permission to correct me and and give me a kick in the pants every now and again when I need to get back on track. James calls the church at large to practice a form of preventative spiritual medicine. That's what discipleship and accountability is. Instead of merely waiting for the times when we hit rock bottom or we make a big mistake and someone has to then come and correct our mistake, we're proactive in the process. We find somebody that we respect and honour and we give them the permission and they say, would you look over my life? I'll come to you. I'll share my needs. I'll share my heart. I'll share the things that I'm struggling with in confidence and with love. Would you mentor or keep me accountable? Now, we can do that in circles. We can have accountability one-on-one. We can have accountability in small groups. We can have accountability at a church But the way that you apply those levels needs to be done with sensitivity. What I might share one-on-one with the mentor, I probably wouldn't come and tell the whole church about it. I would understand that I've given that person a much deeper insight into my life than perhaps I will do to the whole church. It may be appropriate to tell the whole church, but it may not be. We need to understand that there is levels of accountability. Why did Jesus not take the twelve? Why did he only take Peter, James, and John? Because he wanted them to have an understanding and an insight at a much deeper level than he did everybody else. It's really important. Accountability is so good. It's, it motivates others to radical love and hope. Um already used that verse. The author believes our relationships are crucial to our perseverance and growth. He offers three relational commands in this context. Meet together, stir one another up, that's the wrong verse, and encourage one another. It's the whole passage talking about stir one another up to good works. But it's not open license for everyone to be looking into everybody's life and speaking into every life and telling Trent he's false and telling Pali what he's doing wrong. No, it's not. It doesn't work that way. We need to understand our permission and our relationship. Okay, here's my point. Don't wait to be made accountable. Don't wait. Every one of us is going to make mistakes in life. Every one of us is going to need correction. Every one of us is going to need someone to come and help us to grow, to be the best people we can be. It changes the whole dynamic when you're saying, I want to be taught, I want to be corrected. I want to be encouraged, I want to be, rather than make me, Mark. What faults? I don't have any faults. What's my problems? Haven't you seen all their problems? That's the wrong attitude. That's not a Christ-like, contrite spirit. And it changes the whole dynamic. When you've got someone who says, would you make me accountable, and they've come and they've been proactive about that, there's no tension there. There's no defensiveness. They don't have to justify themselves. It's a beautiful platform of a relationship where you can share heart to heart with them. And it's not about your mentor is here and you are down here and he's going to look down on you. It's about him being able to share the deepest things in his or her life to encourage and to show you that he struggles just as much. Okay, if you have someone who's your accountability person, it could be a couple, it could be a person that you've picked out, I don't know the context, but you need to negotiate the role. Don't assume that they know or make sure they know what their role is. So if you want someone to keep you accountable for your gambling habit, go and say, I need you to keep me accountable for my gambling habit so that that person can ask you the right questions because if you just say, hey, Trent, keep me accountable, what's that mean? Make sure my grass is mown every week? Make sure my car's washed? Like, it could be that. Maybe that's what I need, to be a discipline in all facets of my life. So you need to negotiate with whoever it is that you're setting up as your mentor. They are not there to be your friends and tell you what you want to hear. That's the cutting edge. We want people who will have the courage to bring out our best. They won't dodge the issues. They'll bring them up with love and grace. And the best will come out of us. If we don't have regular accountability, pride will get us. It will. It will get you. Because if people are not speaking into your life and helping you grow, then you've stopped growing. Yes, you can do this with the Lord, but most of us need a human face to understand the way that we operate socially and operate in life. We need people to help us. That's why Paul had Silas. That's why Barnabas had Paul. And if you look through the pattern of Scripture, that's why Elijah had Elisha. There's this pattern. That's why David... That's why... That's why... That's why there's a pattern in Scripture of people being accountable to one another. So you take the place of saying, could you please keep me accountable? And then you get the right... To keep others accountable, not with judgment, but with love in your heart. Um, It's something we invite, not something that we loathe. I sat down the other day and I thought, I need to have you understand this is not something I'm just talking about, this is something that I do. These are some of the people that have been in my life that I have intentionally gone to and said, I need you to keep me accountable for this area of my life. Some of them it was preaching, some of it was my marriage, some of it was personal struggles, some of it was the whole kit and caboodle. But I intentionally went to them and I said, could you keep me accountable? Now, any of you, some of you know some of these names? These are not people that you know are going to just always tell you the things that you want to hear. But isn't that the point of accountability? That the people that are going to bring the best out of me need to be the ones that are going to keep me accountable. Don't expect to give accountability if you don't accept accountability. Now, the whole point of affirmation and exhortation and admonition and accountability being involved in all of those is that do you really want to grow? Do you really want to be the best that you can be in God? Because we need disciples and we need to be disciples and we need to disciple others. I think I've had about 18 mentors in 16 years of spiritual life. And I think I've mentored about 48 people in my life intentionally. These are people that have come to me and said, Mark, would you mentor me? That's not a proud statement. It's just the pattern of the way it should be. We should be receiving accountability, trying to keep my life walking in the truth and the light of how God wants me to live. And sometimes we can have blinkers on. We don't even see our own faults. They're so familiar to us, we don't see them. You know, and then when someone, you give them permission to help you, you suddenly discover that there's freedom because that person's taught you things that you didn't know before or didn't see before. They break off your life. There's a whole new freedom and abundance that's come because you were humble enough to ask somebody rather than waiting till you make a big mistake and the pastor had to knock on your door and say, We have an issue. See the difference in the context? The body grows because the body is being built up. Now, if all we have is admonishing and never any affirmation, then it's going to be the wrong context. There should be affirmation all the time, building one another up, seeing the best in people, speaking the best over people, believing the best over people. And then find yourself a mentor. They're not easy people to find. They won't be people that you go, oh, you know, There are going to be people that probably push the wrong buttons in your life or you know will talk straight down the line, but you will be so much the better for having a good mentor. It can be really awkward at times when they probe and push into areas of your life where you've sort of put up a barricade, but what happens if that thing gets healed or resolved? Isn't that what we want? I don't know that it is. In the Western church, I'm sorry, I don't think people want to be accountable. I honestly don't. Because if you did, you'd make sure it happened. Who has a mentor? Four people, five, six, seven out of, you know, not not enough. That's my point, because it is, we want to hide. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be Bruised and battered by allowing someone into that inner sanctum. That's why you choose your mentor carefully. You know it's someone you can trust. You know it's someone that has a good pattern in their life that won't, you know, barge into your life. Even though they are your mentor, they'll st- st- still keep checking. Do I have your permission? Is it okay if we talk about this? I'm a bit concerned about this area. Would you like to talk about that? Or, is, you know, it's permissional all the way through. It's never just come and barge in. But it's the privilege and the honour of being that person who receives and being that person that models. It's a God way of doing things. So I want to go back to affirmation. I'm going to stretch you a bit this morning, sorry, and even if you're visiting, it's okay. We're allowed to make mistakes. I don't think we... The thing about Christianity is we teach about concepts, right? We teach about affirmation. I teach you about exhortation. I teach you about admonition. I teach you, but then we don't do it. And because we don't do it, it just becomes like, uh-huh, I can put that on the shelf of my life. The Bible said God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to what? Equip the saints. So don't just talk about the theory. (coughs) Teach them how to do the practice. So do we know how to affirm people? Some people do it very naturally and do it very well. Other people, it's just a learnt art, and that's what I'm saying. We've lost the art of a revolution of love because what comes out of our mouth should really build people up. I should be able to walk around the room and find people that I don't even know very well and find some way to affirm them. Or when the conversation unfolds with those people, my first point of contact should be, how do I build this person up? What is their need? How do I encourage them in their journey in God? So even if I don't know them, I can have a conversation with them and very quickly even use scripture. Even if I don't know anything about their lives, I can say, hey, Kerry, I've been thinking about this scripture verse this week, you know. Um, You know, um, do not be discouraged. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I'm just thinking, hey, don't forget. God's with you wherever you go. I'm sure there's despair and discouragement and dismay in your life right now, but don't forget God's with you all the way. Have I torn her down? What have I done? I've just spoken into her life and said, Be encouraged. Remember God's with you. Go on for it. Now I don't even need to know Carrie to say that. That's why I'm saying it's the lost art of the church to affirm, to exhort. Come on, Trent. There's more for you, mate. Admonish you, cut your grass, buddy. <laughs> Or give me your ride-on so I can cut my grass in style. (laughs) You know, the point, it can be humorous. It can be a whole lot of fun. It doesn't have to be this, you know, this contractual obligation that I fulfill. It's not that. It's an absolute blessing to be mentored and to be a mentoree and then to mentor others. It's God's dynamic for us to grow. So what I would like to do, if I have your permission this morning, to get you in two rows and have you across from somebody and have a little discussion with them and find some way to affirm them. Does that make sense? So it could be, how's your week been, Trent? Good? What could have made it better? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that did get a little weird. Well, Trent, how about you and I have dinner one night this week, mate? <laughs> but really, the Christian church has turned accountability into this sour puss thing. He wants to get me. He's out to get me. He wants to unveil all my deep dark secrets. No, that person wants to build you up, wants to see you fly, wants the best for your life and has the courage to go, look, there's 99 things that are good. There's just one area I think you need to learn on. That's the key. Keep building up the 99. Then you get the right to speak about the one, and do it in love. But the church needs to keep one another accountable, because then we will really grow. That's the acid test. Have you ever been to a church anywhere, any time where you can honestly say there was never anything that was spoken that was wrong? Relationally? No. So that's why we need to learn it. That's where the revolution of love will come when what comes out of here never tears people down, builds them up, speaks the truth in love. is not dodging the issues. It's just dealing with them in the right context. Make sense? Why don't we pray? I'll pray for courage, then we'll do two lines. Okay? It's going to stretch you. I understand that. If you're visiting with us, we don't want to push people over the edge if you're really uncomfortable i understand you don't have to be part of this but i want to create an atmosphere as you guys know where we do workshop church we just don't talk about it we do it so what we'll do is two lines have a quick conversation see if you can find some way to affirm that person could be just sherry really like your dress today looks great and she'd be really worried if her dad was saying, I like her dress. But, so that's flattery. That's the wrong context. But you understand what I'm saying. We need to learn this art. We need to teach this art. We need to teach our children. Because I can tell you, they get torn down out there in the world. And if we're not affirming them, if we're not building them up, their self-esteem will be terrible. So we need to learn the art. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that you are a God who says that we shouldn't despise discipline that you actually tell us that you love us and because you love us that you do correct us because you want us to grow. You want us to fulfill our potential. You want us to shine like the stars in the heavens, Father. You want us to be so Christ-like that uh, we are such an incredible model of what it means to be humble and contrite and, and teachable and always learning always knowing that there's more in God, always knowing that I can learn new things about my character and adjust things and modify and purify myself by the grace of God and by the power of your spirit and by your counsel and, and in your grace and mercy, Lord, we can all learn. And I pray, Father, that you would help us as a church to, to understand the principles, but, Lord, put them into practice as well, so we find quality people who speak quality truth into our life, that we might be refined and honed and transformed. Lord, like John said this morning, just dragging those weeds out, allowing you, Father, from a, from a different perspective to, to shine a light into our lives. Lord, what a privilege it is to grow. What a privilege it is to help other grow, others grow. So Lord, help us to build one another up and let those words come out of our mouth that only do that. And Lord, help us to understand what it means according to other people's needs. Help us, Lord, to put, our, put ourselves in their shoes and understand what they're going through and, and what they need to hear and how they need to hear it. The tone and the context, Lord, that we wouldn't damage them in any way, but we would just exhort and affirm and admonish and build them up. Because, Lord, that's what we want to do. We want to build people up, edify them, so our body is whole, and it's righteous, and it's pure. So, Lord, I pray this week that we would find a mentor if we don't have one, that we would celebrate the mentor that we have if we do have one. Lord, that we would come and and put ourselves in a place, a posture of saying, Lord, teach me, train me, Mold me, shape me. Let me be clay in the potter's hand. And Lord, I know we can only be the better for that exercise. We can only be better by having the scrutiny and the advice and the counsel of your spirit and your people. So Lord, help us as a church and help us individually to want to grow, to really invite that sense of growth and put the things in place Lord, that are really going to make that happen. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I better pray for courage. Lord, I pray for courage. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to learn, help us to be able to recognize what you're doing in people's lives and the good things that you've implanted into them so that, Father, we can declare them, we can pronounce them, we can confirm and ratify them, we can encourage those people to understand what They might not even see themselves, that God is at work. Because we're made in the image of God, therefore there's good things to celebrate. Father, help us to see those rather than the faults and help us to be you know, someone who just encourages. I think about Bernie up the back here and the way that he's encouraged me and always sees the best in people. He'd be a great mentor. Go and talk to Bernie. <laughs> but Lord, that's the truth. We need those people. Because iron sharpens iron. Be iron that sharpens, but be iron that gets sharpened. Lord, that's our prayer today. Lord, teach us how to affirm. Teach us how to speak love. Teach us how to use that tongue, that little thing that can do so much damage, to do so much good, to speak life over people's lives. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.